We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 14. If you'll open your Bibles there. We're going to be in verse 25. That's where we're going to start. 2 Samuel 14, verse 25. And I'm going to soon jump right in. We're going to get right to it. Verse 25. Now in all Israel, there was no one who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, at the end of the, every year he cut it because it was heavy on him. When he cut it, he weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels. That's about five pounds. 200 shekels according to the king's standard and to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. So he named his daughter after uh, his sister, Tamar. Uh, she, speaking of his daughter, was a woman of beautiful appearance. And so Absalom here, we read, he is Rico Suave. Man, this guy is a Calvin Klein model with a, with a family to match, right? Just gorgeous guy. All the girls love him. All the men want to be him, right? That's who Absalom is. Now, he is the quintessential politician, Absalom is. He is good looking. He is narcissistic. I mean, who weighs their hair, for crying out loud? <clears throat> And as we're going to see, he is very intentional about projecting and crafting his image. Very intentional about this. Now, we've had a little bit about uh, experience with, with image. Uh, Scotty, my son, most of you know, was an actor in Hollywood. Uh, and he was a um, regular cast member on, um, on the show Seventh Heaven. And uh, during this season of, of life, because he'd been involved in a, in a lot of different things, is where I was just changing the channels yesterday, turned on AMC, and Green Mile is on. I'm watching my kids on Green Mile. It's kind of cool. Um, but when he filmed Seventh Heaven, it was a season of life where he hadn't been in school uh, regularly uh, since he was like five years old, because he was always on the set. So he was always getting taught on set and so on. But when he, when he booked Seventh Heaven, we thought, oh, great, we'll get some normalcy in terms of his schedule, and let's, let's enroll him in public school so he can have, you know, that experience. Um, and so we enrolled him in public school. Of course, they were all thrilled with the fact that he was on Seventh Heaven, and his teacher astutely one day said, hey, look, we're going we're gonna to do a, a project, and I want every kid to do this project this homework assignment about a day in the life and they have to take video and, and, you know, still pictures and so on and incorporate it into a presentation. They have to keep a journal and they have to do a presentation to the class about, you know, hey, here's a, a day in my life. And so he said, hey, Scotty, why don't you do a, a day in the life by going on the set? And uh, let us see what it's like on a day at Seventh Heaven. So Scotty's like, all right, well, you can't just bring a video camera on set. I mean, it's kind of frowned upon, right? So we have to go to the producers and say, hey, you know, is it cool? Scotty's got this school thing going on. And they're like, yeah, that's fine. Just don't break the fourth wall. Now, what are they talking about? Well, when you're on the set, basically, you're looking at things from the camera's perspective. And so you've got wall number one, number two, number three. Well, where you're at with the camera, that's the fourth wall. And so what they don't want the people to see... Well, they don't want them to be reminded that everything's fake and phony. 
they're all about image. And what they want is the image. They want the Camden house to be thought of as the Camden house. Now, they know that, I mean, people aren't dumb. I mean, we realize it's fake, that it's not real. But they would like not to remind us of that so much. So that don't break the fourth wall. Just show everything from the, from the point of view of the camera. Don't show any of the action behind the camera, the boom, the grips, the, you know, all the people on the set and the camera and so on. And so just do that. Let's maintain this image. Let's, let's let everybody believe that what is actually fake and phony and make-believe, let's make them just continue this belief that it's real. Don't break the fourth wall. What we're going to see today, Absalom is very much like the producers of Seventh Heaven. He does not want to break the fourth wall because he's selling an image. And the image that Absalom is crafting, the image that Absalom is selling is that, hey, me and dad, we are all cozy and good. There's nothing to see here. Everything's cool. And I'm going to be your next king. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Here's why. If you've been with us, you're aware of what's been going down. And if you're just joining us, here's what's gone down. King David is going through a season where he's dealing with the consequences of sin. He had a time, spiritually speaking, where he took his foot off the gas, kind of started to coast, and in that season of, coast, season of coasting, of drifting, if you will, uh, he began to fall into sin. He saw his neighbor's wife, he lusted after her, he committed adultery with her, and then he murdered her husband to, come, to, to cover it up when she turned up pregnant. And so this is what David has done. Now, he dealt with God, God very severely dealing with him. He came to a place of repentance. He confessed his sin. And the Bible says if we confess our sin, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so God has has forgiven David and he's restoring David. But one of the problems, though, is that even though God forgives us when we repent of sin and even though he restores us, when we repent of sin, well, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to avoid all the consequences of our sin. And so David is suffering through consequences from his sinful choices. And one of the consequences is that it adversely affected his kids. And that'll do, I mean, when you take your foot off the gas and you start to drift spiritually and you start to multiply wives to yourself contrary to God's word and you commit adultery with your neighbor's wife and you get her pregnant and you kill her husband, that's going to leave a mark on your kids. And that's what happens to David. It left a mark. It adversely impacted them. And so his son Amnon followed David's example of sexual sin and he raped his half-sister Tamar. Well, Absalom, David's other son, followed David's example of handling problems with violence, and so he went and murdered Amnon for what he did to his sister. Now, as you might imagine, when one son kills another son, it complicates things in the family, and this is what happened here. So the family's been fractured. It's been scattered. Absalom, after he killed uh, his brother Amnon, ran to Jeshur, which is uh, his, his grandfather on his mom's side, was the king of Jeshur. It's near the region of the Sea of Galilee. And so he beat feet. He ran there and he found a place to hide, hid there for three years. And, um, and this is where he was. And last week, what we saw was Joab, 
Well, he persuaded David to bring Absalom back and to work things out with Absalom. And so he kind of did so in a, in a conspiratory way and got somebody to, to sort of make believe and tell him this make believe story and so on. Well, his scheme worked, but even though David relented and allowed Joab to bring Absalom back from banishment, it's just geography. Because what's happened is, practically speaking, Absalom and David are still divided. And, and so there's, there's still this, this banishment, this division, and it's partly because of David's pride, but listen, it's also because of Absalom's pride. And so what you have going on right now is you've got father and son who are still divided, still separated, and it's all vaguely reminiscent of another father and son that Jesus talked about, that being prodigal son, right? The only difference is, and it's a big difference, a big distinction, is that in that story, the son came to his senses and the son returned in repentance and brokenness. And the father ran to his son and the father received his son and the father restored his son. And neither of these are true in the sense of David and Absalom. There's no running to, uh, to the son on David's part. Because, listen, there's no repentance and brokenness in Amnon, or rather in Absalom. No repentance, no brokenness in Absalom. And brokenness is the key. Brokenness is the key. The psalmist said this, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. Jesus put it this way in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And the idea is that when we mourn over our sinful condition with a contrite heart, then we will be blessed. Speaking of the importance of brokenness and repentance, Alan Redpath said this. He said, the popular idea today is that God is love and therefore he must forgive. But if forgiveness is to be adequate, it must stem from two things. First, God will never forgive at the expense of justice. And in other words, he's just not going to sweep things under the rug. You're going to deal with it, and, and sin has to be dealt with in the, in the sense of, of justice. But secondly, Alan Redpath says, forgiveness must follow brokenness and confession of sin. Well, today, the, we're going to see the problem is, is that Absalom, well, he's not broken. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is it that's keeping Absalom from being broken. And from that, we're going to extrapolate some things in our life, some application for us. What keeps us from being broken? Because we've already established that brokenness is key, that we have to be broken by our sin. And all of us, you don't live life in a vacuum. You are a sinner saved by grace and there are areas where you sin, where you get out of line with God, where I sin, where I get out of line with God and from time to time God has to break us and sometimes, and by sometimes I mean all the time, we don't like to be broken and so we have to take a look at this and say, what are the barriers to brokenness? What are the barriers to this brokenness and repentance? We have to look at that, and we're going to look at that today in Absalom's life. The first thing to notice, just from our reading right here, in these first few verses, well, far from being broken, Absalom is full. 
Now you need to choose my next words very carefully. I want to say, say it this way. Absalom is full, so what are the things that are filling Absalom? What are the things that are filling Absalom? First point, if you want to write it down, Absalom was filled with the praises of men. He was filled with the praises of men. You see it right there in verse 25. There was nobody who was praised as much as Absalom for his good looks. Rico Suave, gorgeous, head to toe. Man, nobody praised as much as him. Now, Max Lucado says this. He says, God can't fill you when you're full of yourself. Right? And, uh, And man, this is... Absalom's daily life. He is, he is a man who's full of himself. And God can't fill you when you're full of yourself. You know, recently, Brenda and I have, have been, you know, trying to eat more healthy. And, and one of the things we've been doing, a couple of things we've been doing, first of all, we've been juicing, which, which is, is good. I actually I enjoy it. It tastes great. And it's good for you. You feel good when you, when you do it, you know? And, uh, and, and the other thing, we've been eating vegetables at night. And again, they're good. You know, we enjoy it. But, but here's what we've discovered. If, if, I, um, if I eat like I want to eat, I, I ain't going to eat vegetables and I ain't going to juice. I'm going to eat barbecue potato chips and uh, I'm going to eat, you know, something else, Right? And, and the fact of the matter is, if, if, I'm, if I'm filling myself up with those other things, then I'm not as excited about the juicing and about the vegetables, right? It's like, hey, you want some vegetables? No, I think I'd rather have some pizza. Thank you very much. But you know, a remarkable thing happens if you're abstaining from the pizza, if you're abstaining from the barbecue chips. When, when dinner time comes around, you're like, what's for dinner? It's vegetables. You're like... I can't wait to eat. I'm starving. Bring them out here. And they're wonderful. They taste great, right? Because what happens is, you know, you absolutely cannot, you know, be satisfied when you're full on something else, right? Jesus said one of the keys to having God's blessing in your, in your life is that you have to stay spiritually hungry. You have to say, stay spiritually hungry. He said this in Matthew's Gospel, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They're going to have a full life, Jesus said. They're going to have a satisfied life. But you've got to hunger and thirst for the right things in order to be satisfied by those things. And so what's happening in, in, in Absalom's life is he's full. People are feeding his ego. And frankly, he's feeding his own ego. Hey, let's weigh my hair. Who does that? Well, Absalom does that. And what is the idea? You got to understand the heart behind it. It doesn't take, you don't have to take too long of a walk with that to go, what's the motivation for weighing his hair? The motivation is my hair grows thicker and fuller and more than anybody else's. I'm weighing my hair. Why? For comparison's sake. Now, who else has got five pounds of hair that grows on their head? You know? I look in the mirror, I'm like, man, I'd take one pound of hair. That'd be great. And so, so he's just feeding his ego, and the, you know, the world just fawns at his feet, just wanting to feed his ego. And 
Sadly, when you read this, the, the, all that is said of Absalom is that he's very handsome and praised for his looks. Above all, he's praised for his physical appearance. And the Bible talks about how beauty is fleeting, man. It's, it, you know, if, if that's all you got going for you, well, you, you, baby, you better enjoy it now. Because that day is going to pass, you know? Beauty is fleeting. Now, unfortunately, Israel is drawn to physical appearance. And, and much, you know, to, to, to not to their benefit. I mean, they were, that's why they were drawn to Saul. What was the attraction to King Saul? He stood head and shoulders above everybody else. They're like, oh, look, he just looks like a king. Look at that guy. We're going to pick him, and then they get to know him. And they're like, eh, wish we would have looked inside rather than outside, because the outside didn't deliver all that much. And then, you know, Samuel, he almost falls into the same trap. After God decides by Saul's wickedness and, and his disobedience, and, and God's like, you're done. You're done. I'm going to replace you with, with a man after my own heart. So he tells Samuel, go down to the house of Jesse. Find a replacement for, for Saul because I'm all done with him. Go to, go to the house of Jesse. One of his sons is the future king of Israel. And then Eliab comes walking in the door. And he's this tall, good-looking guy. And Samuel goes, well, surely the Lord's anointed stands here right before me. This is the guy. And God's like, wrong. Wrong answer. And so they're parading in all the different sons of Jesse. And, you know, is it this one? Is it this one? And God's like, look, I don't look at the outward appearance. Man looks at the outward appearance. I look at the heart, right? This is, this is what, what God says, First Samuel 16, 7. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, ultimately, Israel's going to learn the same thing about Absalom as they did about Saul. That what's on the outside doesn't count. But right now, here's the, the thing is, is that, look, he, he, here he's this gorgeous guy, and it's the only thing they can say about him. Matthew Henry says of verse 25 in his commentary, he says, this is a poor commendation for a man that had no, nothing else in him valuable. How's that? He's a good-looking guy. That... That's all you can say about him. In other words, he's like, hey, his good looks are the only good thing he, that, that he's got going for him. The only good, good thing that could be said about him is that he's handsome. Now, it may be, and I, we don't know this for sure, and this is speculation certainly, but it may very well be that one reason that David was so fond of Absalom and protected him from the justice that he should have endured was because of his good looks. Again, Matthew Henry says this, he says, Many a polluted, deformed soul dwells in a fair and comely body. In other words, people ugly up real quick. That's the attitude. Now, this is an important lesson for parents. Here's just a a takeaway. Parents who prioritize veneer over virtue risk raising children who are beautiful on the outside and ugly on the inside. In other words, the idea is you have to be careful with your children to focus on the inside and not so much the outside. 
Now, let me explain what I'm talking about. When I was raising my kids, Brenda and I, and they would hear this often, we would tell them, look, we're not after your happiness. We're after your holiness. And, and if I focus on your heart and getting you to the place where you love Jesus, the happiness part will take care of itself. But, you know, so often what happens as parents is that we want to please our kids. We want to make them happy. We want them to like us. We want them to be our friend. And so what we will do at the expense of who they are inside, we will compromise for the sake of the outside, for the sake of the external. Well, not only was Absalom filled with the praises of men, secondly, if you're taking notes, you can write this down, Absalom was filled with prideful indignation. He was a man filled with prideful indignation. Verse 27, we pick it up, well, verse 28, and Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem, but did not see the king's face, therefore Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. And so he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servants set the field on fire. And then Joab arose and came to Absalom's house. Right? He's got his attention now. Can you hear me now? Right? And he said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, he says, Look, I sent to you. Right? Dude, I called you. I sent you a text. I sent you an email. I sent you a message on Facebook. You're all chatting it up on Facebook with everybody else. I send you a message. All of a sudden, you log off, man. What's going on? I see you liking everything, all the pictures on, on Instagram and everything. All of a sudden, I'm like, Hey, call me. And nothing, right? Dude, you, you won't call, you won't write, and how else am I supposed to get to, to, to get a hold of you? So he says, look, I sent to you saying, come here so that I may send you to the king to say, why have I come from Jeshur? Now this is, this is Absalom's thought process. He's explaining his heart. He's like, it's been two years. I've been waiting around two years. I'm basically under house arrest and, and, you know, you don't call, you don't write, I can't see anybody. It would be better for me. Why, why do I even come from Jeshur? At least there people would talk to me. He says, it would be better for me to be there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. But if there is iniquity in me, let him execute me. And so Joab went to the king and he told him, And when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, which is complete baloney and all total show and nothing of the heart. And then the king kissed Absalom, and this is a mistake on David's part because there's not true repentance going on here. What's the deal? Well, Absalom is filled with prideful indignation. That's what we read here. That's what these verses reveal. And again, it's hard to think of a greater contrast between Absalom and the prodigal son of Jesus' parable there. Because here's the thing. The prodigal son came back humble. He came back repentant. Whereas Absalom comes back and he sets fire to Joab's field, right? Right? Not exactly humble, not exactly repentant. 
And clearly, he has no remorse. In fact, he actually thinks he didn't do anything wrong. You see there in verse 32, he says, if there be any iniquity in me. You're like, if? Dude, you murdered your brother. You're a murderer. If? What do you mean, if there be any iniquity in me? Like, have you so conveniently forgotten what you did? What do you mean, if there be any iniquity in me? Well, listen, he's not repentant, and here's why. Because he thinks he was completely justified. He doesn't see himself as a murderer. He sees himself as being moral and righteous, and as a matter of fact, better than anybody else. His attitude is this. He's like, look... Amnon raped my sister, and I'm the only one righteous here. I'm the only, I'm the one that went and took her into my house. I'm the one, I even named my beautiful daughter after her, right? So you, so you, you want to talk to me about who's got the moral high ground here. I do. I'm righteous. And, and my loser dad who let this thing slide for two years, he's, he's the one that's messed up. No jury's going to convict me. Everybody thinks I'm wonderful. They, all, the, all the chicks love me. All the guys want to be me. I'm, what are you talking about? This is his prideful, arrogant attitude. Now, a couple of things I want to say about this. And here's the first thing, and, and, and I would encourage you to just jot it down. Be careful when you see yourself as morally superior to everybody else. Be careful when you think that you're morally superior than everybody else. Because listen, it's a lot easier to fight for righteousness than it is to live righteously. It's a lot easier to fight for righteousness than to live righteously. Let me explain what I mean by that with an illustration. The Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, there, ready to go to the cross, praying, laboring. He's betrayed by Judas right? Judas comes, he leads all of those that are going to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? He whips out a sword and he hacks off the ear of of the, the servant of the high priest, a guy by the name of Malchus. Hacks his ear off, right? Now, what's going on with Peter? Well, he sees himself as morally superior to those that are coming. And, and he, he perceives, hey, what you're doing is wrong, It's sinful, you're taking a righteous man and you're seizing him unrighteously and you're going to kill him unrighteously and all of that is true and yet, what does Peter do with his actions? Well, it's easier for him to fight for righteousness but he's absolutely unrighteous than to live righteously. He's not living righteously in the moment by the action that he took, cutting off Malchus's ear. Now, Consider this, the last miracle that Jesus performed on this earth before going to the cross was to fix the sinful mistake of Peter. Peter, all high and mighty, how dare you, acts out in a sinful way, hacks off Malchus's ear, and Jesus is like, as he's putting the guy's ear back on, put your sword away, Peter, right? does the, mir- the miracle by putting it, put Malchus's ear back on and healing him miraculously. John Calvin said this. He says, It was exceedingly thoughtless of Peter to try and prove his faith by the sword when he could not do so by his tongue. 
Yikes, right? Now, Absalom's an interesting man. We think of him as a liar, as a murderer, as proud, as angry, as vengeful, as a narcissist, weighing his hair. All of these things are true. But listen, they're just symptoms of a bigger problem. And, and the supreme lesson of Absalom's life is this. It was all produced by the bitterness of a father's failure. It was all produced in his heart by the bitterness that he has been, the fire that he's been stoking in his life about dad's sinful failure, about how dad failed him. There's a movie called Life is a House. And in the movie, you've got a guy who basically was raised by an alcoholic father. And, and he's got a lot of baggage in his life. And so he's living in a house that his father left for him, a house he inherited from his father. And, uh, and so basically, he now is trying to work out his now estranged relationship with his own son. This son of an alcoholic father, this son who's damaged goods from his father's sins, now trying to make amendment for the train wreck he's made out of his own relationship with his own son. And so there he he says, I want him for the summer. I'm going to rip down this house. I'm going to rebuild a new house. I want this kid to do it with me. And, uh, And so, you know, the kid played by Hayden Christensen, just this really angry, upset, drug-addicted, messed-up kid. And so there he is. This is the storyline, and they're ripping down uh, the house. And uh, he, sa- he says to his son, hey, man, you know, you should join me doing this. And his son says to him something to this effect. He says, look, you're not building a house. You're just tearing down your father. And he says, it feels good. You should try it. Now, <clears throat> super illustrative, because what happens so often is that well, we go through life and maybe we're, like, we're just like Absalom. Maybe we've got baggage. Maybe we've got stuff in our life. Because of the sins of our father or the sins of our mother. And so we've carried that into our life. And what's happened then is now, man, all of this stuff that comes out in my life, well, it's coming from a place that I'm pridefully indignant of how I was wronged by my sinning parent, and yet what happens in my life? I'm pridefully sinning. And so what happens is that the, the things that are coming out, man, they're, they're all in the name of prideful indignancy about this wrong And yet they in themselves are sinful actions that I'm perpetuating. Now, let me just ask you a soul-searching question. Does this describe you? Let me ask it this way. What have you set fire to in prideful indignation in your life? That's worth the price of admission right there. Just take a walk with that. Some of y'all, you need to take a walk with that this week. It's been said a conceited person never gets anywhere because he thinks he's already there. Now, where is Absalom? 
He's already there. Well, where is already there for Absalom? Where, where is Absalom at this time? Well, it's been seven years since Amnon raped Tamar. So he spent two of those years waiting for David to do something about it. When David refused to do something about it, then Absalom took matters into his own hand. He killed Amner, or Amnon rather. Then he spent three years on the run. Now he's spent another two years back in Jerusalem under house arrest. And he's had lots of time to think. He's had lots of time to cook on this. And unfortunately, he spent all of that time focusing on his dad's failure and, and, and living in this prideful, indignant way to where now he gives no thought to himself. Jesus said, you know, why do you look at the log in your brother's eye? Why don't you, or the speck in your brother's eye? Why don't you, why don't you take, take time out, focus on the log in your own eye? Then you're going to see clear enough to see the, the speck in your brother's eye. Well, Absalom hasn't done that. And so now all he can think about is revenge. All he can think about is, is, is how am I going to get even? How am I going to atone for, for my loser dad? How am I going to make him pay for what he did to my, my, my sister, what he's done to me? Well, here's how he's going to make him pay. He's going to set his sights on his dad's throne. Absalom is going to figure out a way that, man, I can undermine my dad's authority, that I can steal the kingdom from him. And so what's he want to do? He's, he's going through all of this, and he's making all of this, this plea to say, I've been here two years. I want to go see my dad. Let me set fire to your field. Let me have all of this. He's doing all of this, not because he cares about reconciling with his dad, it's all about the fourth wall for him. It's an appearance thing. He's like, look, I want to go get this public forgiveness so that everybody can see that me and dad are cool, even though in my heart and in my mind, we are, we are cool was a lifetime ago. We ain't never getting back to being cool with one another. No, I want everybody to see this forgiveness. I want them to see this pardon, this restoration for my crime. Why? Well, because then I can mount a campaign to take over his throne. And then I can really hurt him. And this is the dynamic that's cooking right here. So, so Absalom is a man filled with the praises of men. He's a man filled with prideful indignation. And thirdly and finally, he was filled with personal ambition. Chapter 15 Verse 1, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And so clearly the horses aren't for speed. No, he's got 50 men to run before him. What is he doing here? It's an entourage, baby. It's a look at the limo I'm pulling up in kind of deal, right? This is all image. And so he, he provides himself, and it just, don't you love the language there? Absalom provided himself with these things, right? Let me just provide myself all of these things that make me look so big, so important, so, so absolutely like a king. 50 horses, there were 50 men to run before his horses. Now Absalom would rise early. And stand beside the way to the gate. This was where all the main business transactions of the city and of the people of the city would take place. And so he is, uh, he, and he is in, 
He's a, he's a busy little guy here, man. Rising early, puts himself right there in the way where everybody could see him. And so it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And then Absalom would say to him, oh, look, man, your case is good and right. But there's no deputy of the king to hear you. Now, what's he doing there? He, in a very underhanded, backhanded way, is basically casting aspersion on his dad. He is here saying, you know what? My dad doesn't care enough about your situation, doesn't even know your name, doesn't know where you're from. I know, I know your name. I know where you're from. And, and you know what? He, he hasn't provided the right counsel that you're going to need. He hasn't provided for you the way that you should be provided for. Oh, but I think your case is good, man. I'm pulling for you. I'm your friend. So he's cutting his father's legs out from underneath him in this way. And moreover, verse 4, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land. And everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. And then I would give him justice. You're not getting justice right now. But oh, man, if I were, were, were put in that position, I, you'd get justice with me. And so it was, verse 5, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. Oh, don't bow down to me. Come here, buddy. Pow, we're good, man. And so it was like, oh, no, I don't shake hands, man. Give me a hug. You're my brother. You're my, he's, you know, politicking, kissing babies, the whole bit, man. And in this manner, verse 6, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. He's hijacking it, right? And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Absalom was filled with personal ambition, and he's still not broken by his sin. Not by a long shot. There is no brokenness in him. If anybody, he's more emboldened in his sin than ever before. And listen, this is always the result of restoration without repentance. This is always the result of, well, what we see there in verse 33 of the previous chapter, Absalom comes, he bows down, but there is no bowing down of his heart, it's all for show. He's still righteously indignant, he still thinks he's right, he's not broken, he's not repentant, and David restores and forgives and all of it gives him everything just to, oh man, just got my son back, but it's always the result when it's not a true brokenness. And a true repentance, well, this is always the result. Right where we're at here today. Adam Clark, in his commentary of this section, he says, we might say that Absalom's greatest sin was impatience. Absalom seemed to stand nearest to the throne, right? He's next in line. But his sin was that he sought it during his father's life and endeavored to dethrone him in order to sit in his stead. In other words, if Absalom had humbled himself, had supported his father's rule, had supported his father's reign, had played his part to serve his father, hey, in time, he would have gotten all of this stuff. But no, he was impatient, and so he wanted to take his father out. And of course, we know, just by going through this, he's trying to hurt his dad. That wouldn't be good enough for him if he 
did that when, when dad was, was dead. Well, what good, is, what, do, what good does that do Absalom for the, vindic, the vindictiveness that he has in his heart? The way he wants his dad to suffer, the way he suffered, that doesn't do him any good. And so Adam Clark says, man, his greatest sin was impatience. Here was, here's what I would add. Absalom was impatient as well about restoration without repentance. And we could go off on that a very long time. Let me just simply say this. This, is, this speaks to the condition of the human heart because so often what happens is that we, like Absalom, we have committed sin in some way, shape, or form. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to humble ourselves and allow God to break us and bring us to a place of repentance for our sin. No, we want God to wink at our sin, to sweep it under the rug. We want God to take our lame excuse... And just swallow, oh, you know what? Yeah, I know your word says that, but there's some mitigating circumstances why I had to do this. And we want God to go, hey, okay, you're the exception to the rule. 2,000 years, this is applied to everybody else on the earth, but it doesn't apply to you, clearly. Because your mother-in-law is just horrible, of course. Whatever it is, right? <laughs> Absalom's impatient. Now listen, he, and consider the audacity. He doesn't just want his old position back. Forget the fact that he wasn't even faithful to that. He doesn't just want that back, having been unfaithful to that. No, now he wants more. Now he wants more. Unfortunately, sadly, we see these kind of shenanigans in churches. We do. And, and, and you know, I've been a pastor for over 20 years, and I've seen it. In our church, I've seen it in the church that I was at prior to this, to where you'll get people that'll come in and they pull an Absalom and they just want to, you know, draw the hearts of everybody towards themselves. They just want to sort of... <laughs> I had a situation happen, actually, at this church. I had a guy come to me years ago and he, and he says to me, hey, you know, I really, man, I love to teach. Why don't, you, why don't you share the pulpit with me? Why don't you let me preach? On, why don't you just trade off? I got a friend that does that. Why don't you let me do that? I'm like, huh? He's like, oh, you know, I'm like, dude, if, if you want to preach, then, then why, don't you start, why don't you start a church? L- let me help you. Like, why don't, why don't you go out and start a church? He's like, I don't, I don't want to start a church, man. I don't want, look, I don't... I, I, don't, I don't want to deal with the bills, and I don't want to, I don't want to deal with, with, you know, having to do children's ministry and, 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 you know, all of that. I don't want to deal with, with all that other stuff. I just like to preach. I go, <laughs> I mean, you know what you just said to me, right? I said, you know what you, metaphorically, what you just said to me is, hey, dude, your wife is hot. You know, and I, and I don't, I don't, I don't like doing dishes, and I, and I don't like taking the trash out, and I, and I really don't like having to get the car fixed. But you know, if I could just date your wife, that would be awesome. I'm like, go get your own church. Go, go, go minister to your own people. And and he goes on from there. Go well, you know, gosh. That, that, that's easy for you to say, you know, because, you know, when, when you left Revival to start this church, you, you had a, a lot of people that, that, that went with you. I said, I had four people when I started this church. And by the way, when I started Revival, we had four people then too. So go take your four people and minister to them and stop trying to, to, to do what you're doing. 
Because what you're trying to do is to, to build on another man's foundation and to go work your way in and try and do something that's underhanded. And listen, listen, we in the church need not to be taken in by such deception because it happens all the time. There are, sadly, Absaloms in the church. They show up and they position themselves in such a way to where they're glad-handed and they're all, and they never outright come against the person who's in charge, but it's always a subtle, oh gosh, this isn't right. And your case is good. And oh, if, if I were, gosh, only if I could take care of you, I wish I could. Because man, it just, it stinks to be you right now in that, in that church that's not taking care of you. Um, they never any, they never really said anything Badly against the church, but man, they have not done you or the church any favors at all. And so there's this sneaky division. And so, listen, here's what I would say. If you look for problems in the church, you'll find them. If you look for problems in the church, you will definitely see them. And if you listen to dividers, you will see areas where things could be done better. So here's a thought. Make them better. Seriously, make them better. Be part of the solution. Don't be part of the problem. And when you're part of the solution, to be able to step up and go, you know what? Because what could Absalom have done if indeed it was true that people were coming and they weren't getting a fair shake? Couldn't he have, rather shouldn't he have, gone to his dad and say, look, dad, I'm seeing a need here that's not being met and this is a way that I can help you, king. I can help you in this way. And he can do so with the right heart. But no, instead, he wants to be divisive and bring division. And what we're going to see next week is that he organizes a coup and runs his dad out of town. And so be part of the solution. And when you do, look, don't do it with an entourage. Don't do it with chariots and horses. Do it with a humble heart. Paul said this to the Philippians. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And this whole section of Scripture, I think that's just the the verse that stands loud and clear just next to it. Just, just Just a big old mark right next to this verse, which is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Hey, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, let's consider others better than ourselves. 